What's up, everyone? I want to tell you guys about my friends over at GT Nursery. Green Touch Nursery is located at 8842 Park Street in Bellflower, California, 90706. Oscar, the owner of this nursery, is a dear friend of mine and was actually a guest on this podcast on episode number 28 titled The Shed with his brother Edgar. Make sure to check that out. Oscar's been growing plants since he was 10 years old and was exposed to nurseries his entire life. His family owned multiple nurseries, so he grew up working in these places and lives and breathes plants every single day. He opened this place up back in February 2015. They are open on weekdays 8 to 4 and weekends 9 to 3. They specialize in cacti and succulents from all over the world. And let me tell you, with Oscar, the knowledge goes deep. This dude is constantly in the field doing research, going to botanical gardens, getting with really experienced growers and asking all kinds of questions. So you don't just get a plant, but you get the knowledge and passion behind this place. And that can really be felt when you're there. Their mission is to create a community of like-minded individuals from all walks of life that enjoy beautiful plants. I would say they have succeeded in their mission. I've attended multiple plant swaps and meetups. And this place is really like a home base for the for those of us in the local community. They also host these big sales where he brings in vendors from all over the place, really bringing amazing and obscure plants to the table. You need to head over to their Instagram at GT Nursery. I will make sure to plug a link to all of their socials and content in the description of every episode. He does these live auctions every Wednesday evening, and it's a lot of fun. He's constantly uplifting other members of the community and really giving other people an opportunity to come on to this very successful auction and sell plants. I've done it a couple times and it's amazing to see the success that they've had. Oscar and Edgar have really dedicated themselves and honed their craft and have been very consistent with these auctions. It's a lot of fun. Even if you're just watching, it's one of my favorite things to do on a Wednesday evening. You can head over to their Instagram for more info. I'm very grateful to have this partnership and to be telling you guys about this place. Green Touch Nursery, 8842 Park Street, Bellflower, California, 90706. Tell them I sent you. This podcast is brought to you by Mezcala Nursery, located at 6901 Orange Avenue, Long Beach, California, 90805. Mezcala is family-owned, family-ran since 2007. This is the House of Succulents Growing Grounds. I'm talking everything you can possibly imagine in the succulent realm from your common everyday plants to your more rare and obscure imports. They can service your landscaping needs and they have a bunch of hoop houses dedicated to houseplants and tropicals. If you guys need any kind of plant, I'm telling you, go to Mezcala. If you bring them a price from another nursery, they're going to beat it. If you bring them a price from a big box store, they're going to beat it. 6901 Orange Avenue, Long Beach, California. 90805 Mezcala Nursery. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to If Plants Could Talk. This is Garrett. I'm your host. This conversation took place on March 15th, 2022 with my very special guest, author and cannabis advocate Charlena Berry, also known as Char. Charlena is an amazing human being with such a beautiful intention behind her new book coming out here on March 21st. It is titled Breaking the Stigma, Racism, the Opioid Endemic, Lies, and Inviting Grandma to the Dispensary. I personally am very grateful to have crossed paths with Charlena as I feel that both of our missions are very aligned and she truly emulates a lot of my intentions with this podcast platform. So I felt it was a great match and 
really was moved by her story and related a lot to her. I hope you guys enjoy. Here's Shar. Charlena Berry, also known as Shar. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So could we start with some basic stuff? Uh, where are you from? Maybe some of your background information? Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Michigan. Okay. And about 10 years ago, I moved to South Florida. Uh, I spent most of my career working in the corporate world, Fortune 500 life. Mm-hmm. Uh, about five years ago, I said, I don't want to work for uh, the man anymore mm. and left my job. Um, and I met an attorney in uh, medical cannabis at the time in Florida, uh, medical cannabis was going to be a thing. Uh, we did some projects together. He introduced me to the industry. And um, since then uh, I opened my firm cannabis business growth and I've spent the last five years um, specializing in navigating uh, licensing for markets all over the country. Um, I've got a ton of licensees in California that I've worked with. Wonderful. Worked in Massachusetts, Michigan. Uh, I went to Africa once, which was pretty cool. Wow. Um, so I, I, I've had a lot of fun working in the industry. That's amazing. Uh, how did what brought you to this? What, what do you think it was that that eventually like pushed you to to take that leap from from the business world to your to an entrepreneur world? You know, working uh, in the corporate space, there's, you know, whether people believe it or not, there truly is a glass ceiling for women. Mm, Um, And and I'm young. um, And I felt that I had met my full potential at my job. There was there was no forward momentum until I either got older or was able to kind of break into that boys club. And so it was really a matter of, hey, I you know, there's no future for me here. Um, I need to, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I need to be able to shape my own destiny. Um, and that's how I ended up starting my business. I never could have predicted I'd work in cannabis. Mm. Like it, that was not in the plan. It was that it was like, like I joke, it's my accidental career. Mm. Well, that's a great thing to stumble into. <laughs> Yes, it is. (laughs) I love that. I actually had like a delivery service back in the day and uh, I did a large grow uh, prior to to recreational legalization. And and actually, I I unfortunately had some problems with the police, but uh, it's all good. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, do you have a place called Cake House that you're a part of? Yep. So um, I actually spent last summer in California um, with the Cake House. Uh, they're my biggest client. Um, I'm, I've am i actually gone internal with them. I still do external consulting. Um, and we opened three locations in about a month. Uh, I want to say it's six weeks. So we have a location in Vista, California, Wildemar, California. We have uh, Malibu, which is really fun and awesome. My Actually, have my brother has a tribute in Malibu, um, and then we just acquired uh, the Healing Center in Needles, California. Beautiful, and sure. So, uh, what does this, what what does consulting entail? Like, if somebody were to approach you for services, what what kind of services do you offer? So, initially, I started consulting primarily on applications. So. You know, when 2018, 2019 hit, it was writing the merit-based applications and these competitive 
markets on how to win basically a retail license. Mm-hmm. Um, I started processing state applications in California. Um, and then across the country, I'm, I'm working on some projects in New Jersey right now. Um, but then with the cake house, I expanded my consulting to, you know, how do you take this from a idea um, of, you know, hey, we just did an app to something that's operational. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that go into that a payroll setup, you know, QuickBooks setup, sure. point of sale system selection, hiring new employee handbooks, employee training. Um, and, and that's really what I spent my focus on this summer with the cake house. Wow. The whole shebang top to bottom, top to bottom. That's wonderful. <laughs> now I would imagine you face some challenges going from state to state. Do you have to like, uh, become familiar with the, with the laws and, or are they pretty similar? You know, it's interesting. Um, the law in every state is different, but it's the same. Mm-hmm. So for instance, in California, you've got to have a labor peace agreement, right? If with 20 or more employees in New Jersey, you also have to have a labor peace agreement, but it's with any employee. It's not with just more than 20. Mm-hmm. And so when you've gone through the number of states that I've gone through, you simply get used to what to look for mm-hmm. in terms of the nuances, right? What the sure. general liability insurance is different. And so, um, in fact, right now on my computer, I have the legal code open for New Jersey because I'm studying it right now. You end up in an expert in that in order to go state to state. Mm. Mm. What Do you mind if I ask you, what, what was your original goal in life prior to like accidentally stumbling into this industry is it totally different yes yeah (laughs) well when i i uh in college i studied interdisciplinary humanities which Mm. was history philosophy and anthropology oh cool fun to study i got out of college and it turns out that degree is worthless um you know there's nobody will give you a job because you studied history Mm. so i started working um in my career at in truck display dispatch. I helped dispatch trucks for Whirlpool Corporation. So for about 10 years of my career, I said, Hey, I want to work in supply chain. Um, I actually went and got a master's degree in supply chain. And then no sooner did I complete my degree in supply chain, I switched to retail operations at Office Depot and Office Max. Um, So then it was like, okay, I want to be in retail. Well, then I decided to quit my job. And then it was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to own my own business. And, you know, poof, here I am. And, and, you know, five years later, at you know, in cannabis consulting on applications and retail operations and now publishing a book related to, you know, my my overall experience. Yeah. Well, you strike me as a as an overachiever for sure. <laughs> I'm a. I can't help it. I'm a ridiculous overachiever. So I appreciate you noticing. <laughs> now, did you face any resistance from like loved ones or friends um, when taking this kind of a risk? Absolutely. They thought I was crazy for quitting my job. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm, I'm fine. You know, I'm going to quit my job. Um, and they, then I started working um, before I got my job in cannabis. I actually was consulting for a gun company, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a rifle range in Wisconsin. So they're like, you're working in guns. And I'm like, yeah, why not? <laughs> a jack of all trades, yeah. a jail of all trades, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, consulting for the sins. Um, <laughs> and well, then when I too. started working in weed, 
the family was like, oh my God, like seriously, Char? Like, I mean, they really just thought I went off the deep end. Mm, yeah. And then I spent about a year in the closet um, where I didn't tell any of my former colleagues because there was so much shame associated with it. Yeah. You know, that stigma, oh, you work in weed, you must be dirty. You must be, you know, all the bad things that come with that. And so, yeah, I definitely went through that. I'm a proud supporter now, very public, but it, it, it's been a journey to get there. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine coming from that world that they're like almost um, in conflict in conflict with one another. I would love to dive into the stigma, but I want to hear about this book. What what brought you to this book? Um, what what was the inspiration behind that? And maybe you know some of the details behind it. Sure. Um, so my book's called Breaking the Stigma. Um, last January. I was really just looking at my consulting business and I said, you know, what could really take my business to the next level? And ever since I was a little girl, I had this fantasy of writing a book. Um, and when I was little, I, it was a, a fantasy book with dragons and caves and, you know, like it, it, it was something that was, you know, fun and, but the feeling never went away. And so I said, you know, you know, I have a lot to say on what I've learned about the cannabis industry, and, and I'd like to get that out of my system. Um, some of what I had learned with the cannabis industry is, you know, I recall the day that I went from thinking cannabis was a Trojan horse, right? It, people just want to get high to like, holy crap, cannabis could have been an alternate to opiates this whole time. Yes. Like I can tell you where I was sitting. Like I, you know, I, I live in Florida. I was sitting at my pool and I remember it just like hit me of holy crap. Like this whole time we could have had something else and we didn't. Mm. And um, at the time my brother was living with me and he was uh, clean and sober from alcohol and opiates. Mm -hmm. And he was really my inspiration. Um, he had, um, sorry. It's okay. I totally understand. I'm right there with you. He had, um, come to me and he, he'd been an addict for uh, 20 years and he was clean and sober for the first time, but he felt so much shame associated with his addiction. Mm -hmm. And about the same time, all the uh, lawsuits on the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma started coming out. And it was like, wow, Big Pharma, they did that intentionally. Mm -hmm. They lied to get oxys through the system. And every single addict I know came by it honestly, including my brother. And he was so ashamed of himself because he had spent his whole life as an addict and while he was here living with me, clean and sober, um, one of the ways that we started dealing with his shame is I would take him to a side and I'd be like, fuck Richard Sackler. Part of my, <laughs> yes. part of my language. Please, that's all you want. Yeah, fuck all the right. Sackler family. Fuck the Sackler family. And he didn't realize that the addiction wasn't his fault. Yeah. And he's, he blamed himself for 20 years that... It, he was the he was the problem and it was like whoa 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 brother like check out this lawsuit like these dudes had rap videos to try to sell more pills look at this city in west virginia where they had 800 times the amount needed like this was something that flooded 
the entire country and they were told it was safe, you yeah. know, and I look at my little brother, he was 14. The first time he was handed a pill, mm. he didn't have a shot at not becoming addicted. Like literally like he didn't have a shot at that. Yeah. And that was my big epiphany. And it was like, and he got it from a cancer patient. Right. Mm-hmm. And at the time it was his stepdad and they would send my stepdad home with pill bottles that had 120 oxys in it. Yeah. And it was 1999. That was normal. Like that was what happened to cancer patients then being in Florida, no recreational marijuana, no medical marijuana. I believe in my soul that if they would have handed him a joint, my entire family's trajectory would have been different. Absolutely. Like in, and that's my passion around the book. And, you know, so as I decided to write it with my brother, this inspiration and this huge epiphany, it's like, people need to know this. Like, you know, I think us in the industry, we know it more than others, but there's still all these people that like hate us and detest us. And it's like, okay, how do I get that in a format that people can swallow mm-hmm. and feel how it relates to one another? You know, like the opioid endemic is, would have been very different if weed had been legal. Right. Like and we in states where it remains illegal, we continue to systemically create new addicts by not making cannabis readily available. And so I've gone full full circle from like, hey, it's really important to like accessibility to cannabis should be a human right. Absolutely. Not to mention, I mean, it comes from the earth first and foremost. Right. It's it's a plant. (laughs) It's a a plant. (laughs) beyond me how how they can demonize any plant but um it seems as though that they knew um that cannabis was a a a good alternative which is why cannabis had faced so much resistance not just the stigma behind it but they intentionally demonized it and Mm -hmm. and threw a campaign at trying to get rid of it and continue to lobby to try to get rid of cbd in certain areas i mean in some areas you can't even get cbd it's wild it's in if you know anything about the plant, the fact that you can't get CBD, it's an atrocity. Yeah. Like it, it, CBD is not going to hurt anyone, you no. know, and it's it, it, it it's absolutely crazy that they still use it as a tool to to create criminals. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to share something with you. I actually I have PTSD and uh, I used to get these really bad anxiety tremors where my my hands would shake uncontrollably and CBD was the only thing that got that under control. And wow. uh, I had a stepdaughter as well that had uh, seizures. Uh, they called them focalized seizures uh, as she was young at the time, probably about eight years old. And we helped that helped get it under control as well. The seizures. Um, then there's countless stories and, and anecdotes for that. And I know they're studying it now, but um, it's heartbreaking, you know, that people don't have mm-hmm. access to this. And, and then I think it pushes people towards opioids. Towards opioids or, you know, in the case of children, whatever yeah. prescription drugs they're going to pass down to treat that yeah. when there's a plant that can fix it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Can we talk about some of this stigma, like what your opinion on what what, what the reality of this stigma is? And and uh, yeah, let's just start there. Where did this, yeah. where'd the stigma come from? You know, it's so interesting because as I um, did my research, I'm like, 
how did we get here? Right. Like why, why is weed illegal? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I came from the war on drugs. So it's like, you know, it's, it's bad. It's, you know, and, um, it's, it's commonly known, but I think commonly forgotten, but you know, marijuana and hemp became illegal in 1937. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was shortly after the prohibition of alcohol ended. A uh, guy named Harry Anslinger, he was running the FBN, Federal mm-hmm. Bureau of Narcotics. And he, in partnership with William Hurst, who ran newspapers, um, newspapers that were printed on trees as paper and an investor in paper with as wood byproducts, um, got together and they created a public outreach campaign called the Gore Files that essentially demonized marijuana and hemp. In some of the stories that they publish is that, you know, so-and-so after one hemp cigarette murdered his whole family, Yeah, you know, like just really crazy atrocities. And, um, the Gore Fibles were published. It was 200 of them. I want to say 199 of them have been proven false. And then one, they just can't prove false or not. Hmm. Um, looking at it, um, Harry Anslinger was on the FBN, which became the FBI until the 1960s. He was just looking to create his job, keep his job. You know, it was pure selfishness on his part. He had to create basically a criminal. And when alcohol prohibition was dead, oh, you know, let's tap into the fears of white people and use weed, um, marijuana, the term marijuana. Um, I I don't use it because it's actually was set up as a derogatory term because of, you know, um, the Hispanic heritage of it. Um, and he just created this full campaign and used that to, to prosecute and criminalize, uh, people of color, which is, you know, why there's such a big discussion about social equity. Yeah. They really tapped into the psyche of white Americans by calling it marijuana because now it, it implies, Oh, uh, only Mexicans are using it. Right. Yep. And yep. yeah, I, know, I remember watching one of the videos where they had a black dude smoke and then he his eyes got all big and he like looked like a zombie. And I mean, they just portrayed it. And that's something that's common. Even today, we always have a boogeyman here in the United States. Yep. The media is always finding a boogeyman and just pushing and pushing and pushing and holding on to that narrative uh, to their own benefit, whatever their uh, interests, you know, whatever aligns with their interests at the time. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's and it's sad that that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. So, what do you think uh, it looks like when it's done right? Social equity. What, what's yeah. what's the future of this approach? Of 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 what's the future approach? You know, I've seen social equity succeed, and I've seen it fail. Um, you know, there's a state in the Midwest. Illinois that may or may not have really dropped the ball. You know, they tried really hard to do social equity and it ended up just being gamed um, for a lot of reasons, just flaws in the program. Uh, The most successful social equity program that I've seen is the Sacramento core program. Um, In my book, I actually highlight a woman named Betty uh, Mitchell. She's so stinking awesome. Like I, I recommend you having her on your show if you ever get a chance. Okay. Her, um, uncle in the 1960s was a professor at the university of alabama and in the 60s he found a way to separate cannabis from the cannabis oil into a water form um and would distribute it to homeless people Hmm. um and 
um, she grew up watching him and that secret family recipe was passed down to her in, in terms of how to, to extract that. Um, and she went through the Sacramento core program. She's a graduate from there and she's a successful cultivator in the city of Sacramento. Mm. Uh, some of the things that they did for her is, you know, there was a third party validation of social equity status. There was, you know, grants and loans offered to her to start her business. There was private coaching to help start her business. Um, and that's one of the few places I've really seen social equity done right. Mm -hmm. There's lots of places in the country where they try and it just, you know, license caps create this game um, where everybody wants in the industry, right? Uh, you know, everybody wants it to own a dispensary. Everybody wants to run a cannabis cultivation facility. Everybody wants to do that. There's many other states where they implement it. You know, Georgia, you have six licenses or four, something like that. Mm. But, well, it's a game, right? Like it, four people win. Yeah. It, it, if four people are winning, that means hundreds of thousands are, are not winning. Right. And so license caps, I think, are a huge problem as it relates to social equity. Yeah, that's something that I, I've seen here in California. Um, a lot of people pour themselves towards this industry and then they they're not able to get in and it's really unfortunate and especially uh, like people of color face a lot of resistance in the industry and um we had a lottery here when the back in the medicinal days when when we first went medicinal here in long beach they had you had to buy into the lottery so you had to pay x thousand amount of dollars and you might not even get in they picked mm -hmm. you know 30 or something uh, dispensaries that would end up licensed and there was hundreds of people hundreds of applicants and it was a racket really all it was was the city yep. uh, made a bunch of money playing a game and it plays with people's emotions because you've got all these qualified people and you we're going to spin it to a lottery and you have to pay to play yeah you know i mean that's not equity that's gambling yeah and the obvious implication is going to be like the lower or or middle class that's going to suffer that can't afford to get into the lottery they don't have the money to buy the ticket you know so mm -hmm. there's a wall there for them and it's very challenging and then, i mean that opens up the black market too you know yep it, it definitely the license caps stuff like lotteries merit-based systems it keeps people out of the market and weed in the black market. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about about the black market? What is your opinion on that? Do you think that it's an it's necessary? Do you think? Um, yeah. Um. You know, it's funny. It, it, an interesting question to ask because you know, working in legal side of it, sure. you would think I'd be like, "Hey, it should all be legal." Um, my auntie in North Carolina who makes topical for her husband mm -hmm. couldn't get it without the black market. Yeah. Right. The black markets, what's kept us alive and kept it accessible all this time. Mm -hmm. And until there's a true free market, it's going to exist. Absolutely. Um, and in plates, places where they ban growing your own, I think is ridiculous because mm. Like you could grow your own tomatoes, right? <laughs> you know, I think Weed Maps did that commercial uh, broccoli. Did you see that? I didn't. Oh, you have to go look it up. Okay. It, they, it's um, it was a they got banned 
from the Super Bowl ads. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this dude dressed up as a piece of broccoli. And it's like, hey, cannabis should be regulated like broccoli, broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> For real, though. Yeah. I mean, and it grows as similar to tomatoes. Ed Rosenthal said that when he was on the podcast, he said something about he didn't like the term black market. I think he referred to it as like the traditional market. I can't remember. But um, yeah, thankfully here in California, we're at least in where I am, you're allowed to have, I think, eight plants you can have mm-hmm. legally, recreationally. But um, with, with medicinal, the number changes. I can't remember exactly. It's been a long time since I've actually uh, participated in the industry. So I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like I'm like kind of brushing up with the times. <laughs> what made you leave the industry, the challenges? Um, well, the first time when we got raided, I lost a lot of money. And... Um, so that that kind of kept me out for a little while until a, a, a few years later, and um, we just did the delivery service, and so I was just essentially buying and reselling, and I I did a, a few small grows like greenhouse light deprivation, but um, then I got robbed at gunpoint actually. Wow! <laughs> uh, delivering, yeah, it was very unfortunate, and um, yeah, so I I just felt like for me I just. Maybe it was dumb luck. Uh, Perhaps it was poor judgment. As I said before, I was an addict. So um, I wasn't always maybe having the best intent motivation behind it. Or um, yeah, I just wasn't maybe practicing in the way that I would if I were to do that again today. But then I, you know, I fell into cactus and succulents. Like plants were always a big part of my life. I know you like orchids, and we exchanged that in the email. So uh, as a teenager, I grew orchids, and that was always really important to me, like tropical plants. It felt like a part of my uh, heritage and culture because my grandmother was really into those kinds of plants. And I started um, using cannabis pretty young, probably too young. And so I grew cannabis as well um, through high school and stuff. And, and once I my, – my big dream was to actually start a big cannabis company um, – and uh, that didn't work out, but I did find my way uh, that evolved with time and I found my way into cactus and succulents. And so that's where my, my heart lies. But there's a special place for, for cannabis with me. And I definitely will consider going back to it, um, at least for for fun, you know, as a hobby. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, cactus and succulents are there's a big uh, boom in plants, period, right now which mm-hmm. is lovely, you know, house plants and all kinds of plants. Do you have a nursery? I just have a, I just grow here at home. I have a, a hoop house and uh, I grow indoors as well. I have like a little indoor grow and I'm growing from seed and uh, buying and reselling imported succulents. So I try to, I specialize in more like uh, obscure plants, succulents and uh, sacred types of cactus like the the Lophophora cactus, the peyote cactus, and the San Pedro cactus. I grow a lot of those. Um, it's a dream, definitely, to start a nursery for sure. I would like to actually work with addicts. And, and I do gardening therapy. So I'm, I'm a counselor. I'm a substance abuse counselor. And, um, Good for you. Thank you. And so we do, we do garden therapy sometimes. I'll run a group like that. And uh, I try to incorporate as much holistic stuff as possible. And, and this is where... Our, our two worlds definitely intersect um, is I, I believe in cannabis and the power of cannabis to help heal uh, people struggling with addiction, um, even to 
get off of substances. And a lot of the traditional approach, I, I believe, is archaic and outdated and um, that the recovery is not very black and white. But in the recovery world, it is. They, they, we have a, a prescription approach. And yeah. um, unfortunately, I see a lot of people pass away. And, um, you know, I had a loved one of my own pass away from a fentanyl overdose a few years back. And so that Sorry really, thank you. That really uh, gave me that push to try to find an alternative path for people and seeing so many fail um, or not succeed, not necessarily fail, um, not succeed in their recovery um, despite spending six months in a treatment center with me in, in my care. Um, it, it really was a, a blow, like a devastating blow for me to see that um, and incarceration to what what's happening with, with the people that are incarcerated for these types of substance issues. Um, they end up back in the system or they stay in the system. And so I do believe that cannabis, because um, for me, it helped me it, and it continues to help me. It makes me a, a kinder person, a gentler person, more empathetic. Um, I'm more I'm more careful in my decision making, uh, just more aware and conscious, you know, mm -hmm. so it's been a big tool for me. It, and it, it's interesting with the recovery world, because I feel like they preach mostly abstinence of everything. Mm -hmm. And that leaves people right. Still having to manage things that they were seeking treatment for before, yeah. right. That may have made them an addict. And so, you know, it, I would love to see more recovery messages that are effective in communicating how cannabis can help somebody overcome whatever issues, whether they're anxiety or pain management or whatever they're trying to solve mm -hmm. with their addiction as a way of transitioning or, yes. you know, recovering, right? That the, the the core of recovery is finding your new life without that demon, you know, without the, the, the that craving or, you know, and um, I, I, I hope in the future that abstinence is not the only message. And I love to hear people teaching and guiding people with, with something with a message other than just pure abstinence. Cause I don't think pure abstinence works. Yeah. Well, the issue I see with, with uh, pure abstinence is there's, now shame associated with any type of use, whether that be cannabis or, you know, what's whatever yes. substance. And I, I don't think that, it, that there should be shame associated with it if it can be used for or if if let's just say it's an improvement. If you're using whatever substance um, in recovery, but you've improved, that's a step in the right direction. And we should be mm -hmm. honoring that and encouraging them to not feel uh, shameful or regretful for, for experimenting with something, you know? So, but, and I think the shame that I see with addiction as well is that the addicts are made the lepers of society, mm -hmm. right? They're lepers. They're people you should throw out with the trash and you know, that they're not, they're people, yeah. you know, um, it, you know, and we don't do enough to not create addicts, yeah. right? Like, 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 this, the medical system still systemically creates opiate addicts mm -hmm. right now by, by prescribing oxys, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, um, I had a front conversation like two months ago with my girlfriend in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Medical marijuana has been there for years. Recreational marijuana is there. 
her son, 16 years old, had hand surgery. They sent him home with oxys. Wow. Like, 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 really? Yeah. Like, like he's 16. Like, there's like in my mind, you know, yeah, there's pain, but like I you a 16-year-old shouldn't go home with oxys, Absolutely you know. And not. she's she's like, what do you do? And I said, go buy him an edible. Yeah. And it like that sounds like the craziest advice, mom to mom. Right. But you know, like knowing that my little brother was 14 years old when he was handed an oxy and what it did to his whole life, mm-hmm. you don't know if you're going to be the person that spirals. Yeah. Right. Because not everybody I've had a, a you know, Percocet before mm-hmm. it didn't happen to me. Yeah. You know, we don't know why some people get addicted and some people don't sure. Why ever expose somebody to that, you know? And so, um, you know, we, we create that and then we don't create a path to get out of it. And then we don't have good education around it, you know? And I think what I learned with my brother and the whole fentanyl, and I don't think that there's enough awareness around. So the leading cause of death right now between 18 and 45 is now fentanyl overdoses. Mm -hmm. The media portrays these fentanyl overdoses as despair deaths. Um, That's not true. Um, It's not true whatsoever. Um, There is somebody who brings it into this country they mix it and make it, and it is laced in almost all street drugs. Yep. Um, here in Florida, because we don't have a good recreational market, I know people who've smoked marijuana with fentanyl in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I tragically lost my brother. Um, it's been one year on Monday. I'm, I'm publishing the book in his honor. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss, but that's beautiful. Thank you. But he, he was at an AA meeting. He was 90 days clean and sober mm-hmm. and he got a Valium and he thought he had a Valium mm-hmm. and um, there was fentanyl in it. Um, we all know how harmless Valiums are in his mind. Mm-hmm. He wasn't violating any of his sobriety, mm-hmm. right? It was a Valium. It wasn't an opiate. Yeah. And, um, you know, after he died, uh, my friend's Boyfriend died like three, three weeks later from a Xanax laced with fentanyl. My goodness. I want to say, and I think it's more prevalent here in Florida versus like rec markets like California. Yeah. Um, three weeks ago, I know somebody who passed from it. Um, and I could probably, without, a, without making it up, it takes more than two hands to count the number of people I know that have been lost to fentanyl in the last few years. Yeah. Um, and five years ago, I would have said, oh yeah, it's cause they're an addict. And, you know, now that I know how much fentanyl is in the street, um, I know I, it's definitely not yeah. just addicts that are dying from fentanyl overdoses. No. Yeah. Uh, I would refer to what, what happened to your brother as a, as a fentanyl poisoning. And, and that's something yes. that's, um, happening a lot. And I see it often, uh, clients will come to intake and they'll tell me that their drug of choice is Xanax, but they're popping for fentanyl and, and every substance, same thing with, with meth addicts, they're coming in and they're popping for fentanyl. And, um, it's a tragedy. I, I don't know, perhaps I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why is it in these other substances? Uh, and it can get really dark and conspiratorial, you know, but, um, yeah, the reality is it's in every single substance. Every, we found it in Orange County in every single street drug. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's terrifying. Yeah. 
absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so. And it, it's interesting you say conspiracy theories because I've, you almost have to shut it off to not think about where it's coming from, but yeah. it's like, it's coming from somewhere, yeah. you know, like somebody's doing that intentionally, you know? Yeah. Let's refer back to the crack epidemic. Uh, you know, look there. How much, yep. how much has that been associated with, with governmental influence and in the areas that it ended up in, but now it's everywhere. Now it's in suburbia, you know? Yes. Yes. And I mean, fentanyl originally originated in a pharmaceutical lab. This is just as equally, I think, on big pharma as uh, oxycodone because that's something you can get prescribed, you know? Yes. Um, and that's where I started too was uh, oxycodone. Had oxycodone not been in the streets, perhaps I would have just been a recreational psychedelic user, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where it, that's what grabbed hold of me. And uh, everything How- changes drastically uh, the, from that moment that I tried that. My whole story oh. changes. How uh, how long have you been clean and sober? Uh, just over three years. Congratulations! Thank That's you. something to be insanely proud of. Like I know it. Like it's a, my understanding is a battle every day. Yeah. And so, like, congratulations. Thank you. And I mean, I identify as clean, um, and it's different than um, maybe perhaps most people in in sobriety and recovery identify. I mean, I still use cannabis. I still, uh, I, I participated in the MAPS MDMA clinical trials for PTSD. So I've taken MDMA in recovery. I've done ketamine treatments uh, for depression and suicidality. And uh, I do think that there's a big future for that in the world of addiction. Uh, they're, right now, they're actually studying. Um, MAPS is now doing, they finished their adult study. Now they're doing adolescence with MDMA, which sounds crazy. Like, my kid's going to take MDMA, but it's in the presence of of a therapist. And uh, what they're finding is that 67% of the people that participate in these trials uh, have no longer fit the PTSD diagnosis. And a lot of the, a a lot of people do go to addiction because of past trauma. So the way that they're looking at it is if they intervene in adolescence with these uh, therapies and help them kind of uh, address their childhood trauma uh perhaps they will be less prone to addiction in the future so i'm really excited about that yeah i i think the 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 new studies that are coming with psychedelics and mdma and ketamines is very exciting yeah um you know i i think you know and just to comment on the the clean and sober part um I know that traditionally people who use weed are not considered clean. Yeah. I don't consider weed a drug. Yeah. Like it's not a drug. Like, I mean, it is. I just, if, yeah, I don't know it's, it, it, if you can't die or withdraw yeah. from it, to me, it doesn't count as something that you can be addicted to, you know? And so I don't know, but I think the future of those studies are very exciting to yeah. address that stuff early on, you know, with psychedelics, mushrooms in particular, mm-hmm. particular, you know, the way mycelium grows and reconnects and, you know, if it can do that for neurons in the brain, I, I think we're, we're facing a 
potentially a whole new world with these studies, which I think is really, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Not even in the aspect of mental health either. It's also like uh, productivity. I know like a lot of people in um, Silicon Valley are, are microdosing psilocybin for productivity and uh, neuroplasticity that, that creating the new neurons and connections mm-hmm. and stuff in the brain. It's groundbreaking stuff. Even lions made a non-psychedelic uh, mushroom does that too. That's a, I'm definitely very passionate about mushrooms. Um, can I ask you what you're hoping to improve? Wait, well, sorry. Uh, oh, what are you hoping the book will do to change the customer experience? So, you know, I am um, spending time in California, right? I go out to California and I walk in a dispensary and it's like the Mecca, mm-hmm. right? Like, like products, you know, shelves full of products and everything you you can try, you know, beverages and edibles and cookies and vapes and Mm -hmm. indica sativa and, you know, now the terpenes and, you know, I mean, it really is like the Mecca of cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. I live in Florida. Um, Licensing here is a vertical market. Uh, There's no product selection, you walk in and there's always a flower shortage. And so you're lucky if you find two shell or two strains at a given dispensary, like it's really pretty limiting here in Florida. And so you just naturally end up going back to the black market because you can't get products necessarily from, you know, and you know, not to mention it's 250 bucks for your med card. You got to get it refilled all the time. Like, you know, it's just, you know, really like a big deal. And so with the book, I have, two big audiences in mind. Um, a, um, it's, it's people who work in a dispensary who, who want to become better operators, Mm -hmm. right? Like how do you get better at operating the dispensary? You know, how do we, I still think right now that dispensaries, even in California, there's this perception that they're these bad places. Mm -hmm. And I think the dispensary workers and, and dispensary operators, you know, they're on the front lines of changing people's opinions on that. Um, And I think there's still dispensary operators out there that are really, you know, shops, not all of them, right. They look like old trap shops, right. And the old trap shops aren't, aren't getting grandma in. Right. Right. And not, they're not um, appealing to new consumers on the market. So the big argument in the book is how do we get everybody in the dispensary, right? Like I want everybody to smoke weed. We'd Mm -hmm. all be happier if we all smoked weed. Yes. Um, And then how do you do that right in the new markets? You know, so my other audience is if you're going to try to go open a dispensary in another state, let's make sure you understand really like what you're facing in terms of what people think of you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and how do we make sure that it's bigger than profit, Right. Because yeah. I, I still meet tons of people that are just, you know, I'm going to get in the weed industry to, to make lots of money. And yeah. yes, there is money there. Right. Like there's money to be had um, brand recognition. There's all these things. But, you know, let's still keep the core person in mind, which is the customer, you know, and how do you you know, I don't think we've got to sell our 20 and 30 year olds on products anymore. Right. right? Yeah. Like. How do we make sure that we're expanding the demographic to come into these neighborhoods? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and I, I think of my auntie in North Carolina, right. She's a 60 year old, you know, Southern woman, true Southern, you know, and it took some huge coaxing on my part to convince her that 
popicles were safe and now she cooked it at home uh, but i know i i'm pretty proud of that she when she the first time she called and asked me for the recipe i was like yay that's amazing. <laughs> make your own make your own topical you know but in her her neighborhood overcoming the barriers to bring a dispensary there is going to be huge and mm-hmm. using tools to overcome the stigmas are going to be important for you know breaking through into the uh you know with retail sales in future markets yeah uh what was i gonna say i just drew a blank um oh just by telling that one person you could potentially by by you convincing that one person that could potentially branch out and have like a, a ripple effect and you know now she's telling her girlfriends right and uh yeah the, i love the intention behind what you're saying here um that there is a lot of people that are only in it for capital and um these people get forgotten the the patient themselves which it, i mean at the end of the day it really is a medicine and that's a that's a barrier in and of itself is convincing people that that cannabis is a medicine. Um, you know, a lot of people need science. They need to see numbers, you know, and that's been a problem too, right? Is a lack of studying. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, there, you know, we haven't been allowed to have studies, right? Yeah. And, right. and when I first started, I would have said, give me the studies. And then I learned, oh, you can't study it, right? Yeah. yeah at the point now that it's this many people can't be wrong right like you just can't have that many people wrong and whether you call it medical or rec i still think recreational users are still treating some sort of medical right and even if it's to wind down at the end of the day right yeah that's mental health treatment we all need to wind down at the end of the day you know like that's self-care um you know is what it comes down to so um you know, I, 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 it's important that we spread the seed, create those ripple effects so that we continue to break down the, this, these barriers and get everybody to believe that, Hey, this is useful and can, can be helpful. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people take Xanax to go to sleep. They take their, their Xanax and their glass of wine at the end of the night, you know? So mm-hmm. if that can be, and unfortunately, uh, those two things, those two substances, Xanax and alcohol, are the only thing that can kill you in withdrawal. And so uh, mm-hmm. I don't see why why there's that disconnect, but um, I love what you're doing. And I mean, doing God's work. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Can I ask you what, what you would um, give to somebody as advice that is trying to approach somebody that perhaps has those traditional uh, opinions and stigma, like how, how can we make it palatable to the layman or even the listener, you know? I know it's a deep question. It's a deep question. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's funny because it's, I think it's by person, um, you know, in, in their, in their particular appeal, sure. you know, and, I, I, and I think in particular of my auntie, right? Um, what I feel when I switched to the industry, right? I got that first bout from my family that was like, oh, you're bad for working in weed, right? Yeah. And then it was this next wave of like the family coming to me in secret to talk to me about it. You know, like, hey, Char, do you think that uh, cannabis can help with this? Right. Hey, do you, th- you know, and it's a real low discussion. 
you know, and do you think that because they're ashamed, they're embarrassed that they have to ask, you know, there's this like stigma that they're fighting with because they have the just say no commercials in their head, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's to me, it's being an open listener, but then providing like knowledgeable feedback in context, you know, like if I use a topical, will my urine test be clean? Right. Right. Or even some of those things. Valid and, yeah, concerns. No, but, yeah. Valid concerns. But then it's like, okay, oh, I don't want to be high. If you put topical on your body, you're not getting high. Right. Right. But yeah. like, <laughs> you know, but it, and it's, it, I think it takes a while to learn all those pieces of advice as being part of the industry. And then you forget the outsiders don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's why it's important for like really good educated bud tenders to be able to, yeah, they end up being patient consultants, they're right? The front like, line. They're the front line and they, they, you know, bud tenders in California are awesome because they know almost all of them like have this inherent knowledge about weed yeah. that the rest of the country doesn't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. And so I always think of California as like the outlier. Yeah. California knows everything <laughs> because it's been there, right? It's part of the market. It's, it's part it, of the culture. You know, yeah. Part of the culture where it's like, okay, well, we'll take that 41 million people. We still have, you know, another three, you know, 280 million people that are still working through that. Yeah. Another thing that I think is very important is uh, people like yourself that are open and willing to to take the risk of, of discussing these types of topics publicly. And uh, I hope that this will inspire more people to uh, come out of the closet if that uh, if that is something that, that they struggle with by, by becoming more open, at least locally, um, w- with your loved ones and stuff. And um, yeah, I think you're doing a great service here. Uh, however many people it may reach may have a, a wonderful ripple effect for years to come. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think my own, you know, if I were to help change people's mind about addiction, as well as provide education into the plant, my book has served its purpose. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I feel like it was just this big epiphany for me when I saw this, right? Like it was just this huge, like eyes wide open. And then when my brother died, it went from, hey, I have a story to tell to, hey, I'm not going to be complete unless I dump this out. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and so now I'm complete because it's out of my system. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's helping my mom understand. It's helping, you know, I, f- I can't help but think that there's so many people that have dealt with this, like yourself and your own personal losses Um, and having to understand that full circle, you know, it's not just, you have to understand everything is an integration, right? Like it's not weed all by itself and it's not opiates all by itself. Like these are things that the story, you have to tell it together. Yes. Because telling it together is the most important part of overcoming the true stigma in and of itself. Mm, I love that. So thank you. Before we close out, I'd like to ask you one about leadership and then two about your own plant collection, if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. So what do you think? Um, what is some of your advice on on people that are perhaps 
stepping out of just a uh, a role as a, a bud tender or you know on the lower level of the totem that want to really grow into leadership position of leadership so i think leadership is definitely a skill that can be taught okay not everyone is naturally a leader mm-hmm. um i i've been gifted that i'm a natural leader mm-hmm. but I'm the oldest child, right? I had two brothers. Like I, mm. I've been, sp- I've spent my whole life bossing little boys around. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's something that if you study, right, you can develop the skills to become, you know, go from a bud tender to a manager or a leader, mm-hmm. you know, and some of that is in practice and some of it is in theory, right. And it's getting the confidence to make more decisions it's getting the confidence to provide direction, right? Um, I think in particular, you know, it's easier to be a leader when you're an expert in your field, right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you're providing guidance to new people coming in, right, that's the first step in becoming a leader, right, is, is being confident enough to give direction and provide guidance. And then, and then it's the next phase, I think, in becoming a leader is empowering people. Yeah. I think my favorite part about being a leader is making people believe in themselves. And that's truly what I think the core of leadership comes down to is, okay, so how do you take an individual that's uncertain and make them confident? Right. And you have to have your own confidence in and of yourself. Right. But then if you can take somebody and, and tell them like, Oh my God, you were so great when you told the patient X, Y, and Z, have you ever thought about doing this too? Now you've taken somebody and they're doing like a, you know, maybe a B plus job to you're taking them to an A minus, you know? And if you consistently do those things, right. You as yourself grow as a leader, right. But then you're growing the people around you. And that's to me a high function that creates eventually a high functioning team. That's wonderful. So perhaps you can take whatever it is that you are very knowledgeable in that same, uh, that same and, and apply it to whatever else that you're trying to branch off to. Right. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Start with, you know, start with where you're an expert at and then, you know, find ways to provide guidance and, you know, and, and share your knowledge with those around you. Yeah. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't cover that you maybe wanted to discuss? No, I think, you know, in terms of the book, um, I'm excited for the world's feedback. So anybody listening to this today, um, I'm really, really accessible via email, phone, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. And, you know, if, if, you know, you hear this podcast and you decide to, uh, you know, take the time and, and read my thoughts in the book, um, I really, I would love to hear from you in the most genuine sense possible. Um, just because it's to me, you know, my whole heart and soul is in this. And so if I've touched you or inspired you in any way, or you want to tell me that I'm stupid, even, you know, I would like to hear about that just for the different perspective. So I, I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to hear about it today and hearing your side of the story. And I think that we're very much 
you know, aligned in terms of what we believe in our goal and mission and thoughts on life. Yeah, well, you've certainly uh, touched and inspired me. And really, I do feel like this is, uh, this was an important part, like we, we our paths uh, came together uh, for a reason. And that um, I think that this is going to push me to to really go more towards that towards these goals. And uh, I can't wait to read it. I'll read it cover to cover for sure. So thank you for sending me a copy. Yes, happy to. And I will uh, post, I will put links to all of your stuff, whatever it is that you uh, is accessible to you that you're comfortable with. I'll put it in the description of every episode of the episode. Okay, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can we talk about your own plant collection? You have some plants, right? Yes, I do. I do. What do you grow? So Okay, so now there's a rule at my house right now that we're not allowed to buy any more plants. Oh, because Plant ban. Because it's a plant ban. You can't, you're not allowed to walk at the garden section at Lowe's. I'm not allowed to stop at the orchid farm. <laughs> We're out of space. <laughs> so, um, I have four citrus trees. Mm-hmm. Um, one's lime quat, one's lime, one's lemon, and then one's all merged together to grow oranges and limes. I think they did the splicing on it. It's a graph. Yeah, graph. That's incredible. I've always yeah. wanted one of those. Now, citrus trees in Florida attract the black swallowtail butterfly. Okay. So those are a host plant for black swallowtail butterflies. And some people consider them pests. I love butterflies, so I don't. And so I let those big old caterpillars eat all my leaves. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Um, And then I have two pineapples that I grew from scraps. So you've seen those. LinkedIn or, or not LinkedIn videos, Instagram and TikToks where you cut the top off the pineapple and you put it in the ground. Uh-huh. It's all I did. Really works. I, it really works. It takes 18 months to get your first fruit. Wow. But but now I get I get one every year from it. Um and that plant got so big I actually had to cut like five pineapples off of it because it was all over my sidewalk. So I actually <laughs> had to sacrifice pineapple plants this year because of how big it was overflowing. That's fantastic. Um I have three milkweeds, which is the host plant for monarch butterflies. Mm-hmm. I have baby monarchs probably on a cycle of every five to six weeks. Um, and all their chrysalises are all over my yard. And I think last year I estimated I put about 125 monarchs out based mm. on those plants. So wow, they're super important to me. Um I have my succulent collection, which I think I counted because I saw yours and I counted. I think I have like five, 15 or 16 succulents. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a big cactus that's taller than me awesome. um, that we, my ex-boyfriend like eight years ago stole it from somebody's yard. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a stolen cactus. Um, and then I have just all sorts of hodgepodges of those. And then my favorite are my orchids and I have, uh, it's orchid season right now. I'll have to snap a pick and send it to you. I have about 22 different types of orchids and they're all in bloom right now. Lovely. I have a phalaenopsis tattoo and, uh, orchids are super important to me. I love Vandas. I'm very envious of your guys's, uh, weather because I know that like the humidity can really help. And I see pictures of, uh, orchid collectors in Florida that, have their vandas wrapped around their tree like the tree itself Mm -hmm. is the medium right and it's just holding on to it it's so beautiful yeah the flowers and yeah something 
something very special about orchids. It, what what's why are orchids special to you? Um, well, I think it, one my grandmother had a lot of orchids. I had well, she's she's gotten up there now. She's like eighty nine. So mm-hmm. um, it she a lot of her plants unfortunately died because she's not able to get around as much anymore. But that's yeah. what inspired me. Uh, I think I just love flowers. Period. But the the uh, the patterns in some of these flowers they don't look real. It doesn't look like it would actually exist in nature. You know that mm-hmm. they're just so vivid and uh geometrically beautiful you know and and the symmetry too is like just captivating for me and so yeah that was uh, for some whatever reason that was my first love and so my my parents kitchen i had you know probably 20 orchids in the kitchen as a teenager and then when i uh bought my first house i uh i had all kinds of orchids everywhere it was like an orchid jungle um, but now I've expanded into other things. I, I mean, I love tropical plants and house plants and um, all all of the above. My orchid collection is actually pretty small. Uh, despite me loving them, I'm not always the best at taking care of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've killed a lot of orchids, unfortunately. Well, you know what? Everybody thinks they kill the orchid when the truth is most of the time they're not dead. The, the, the like the the plant the, the flower. Um, I think with my, the white ones, I think are, the, and see, I don't even know the names, the philanth, um, uh-huh. you knew the name of it. Oh, the phalanxes? Um, yeah. Those only bloom once a year. Right. So my bloomlet is like six months and then it goes dormant for six months and then I get the, the new bloom again. And yeah. so, you know, and then I got the, the, some of the other ones will bloom two year, twice a year, some are three times a year, but you know, I I love the orchids too, so I totally understand. Yeah, that was really what uh, what drew me in was the first time I got one to flower the following year, uh, seeing oh. it like you know make a new stem and and bloom for a second time. That's what I was like, wow, this is incredible. So that and like propagation, like being able to separate plants and you know make multiple out of one. Uh, not so much in the orchids, but uh, in succulents and other other plants. I, I love to propagate bamboo too. I always grew a lot of bamboo and a wild like like hundred foot tall. <laughs> it's probably an exaggeration. Oh, but that's huge cool. bamboo. <laughs> that's wild. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, thank you so much, Char, for your time. I really really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to reading your book. And is there anything that you want to like verbally plug before I put it into the description? Where can people find you? Yeah. So, um, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a blast talking to you. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm cake house underscore shark. Okay. I, I represent my cake brand on, on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I've got an author page out there, Charlena Berry. And then March 21st, my book will be live on Amazon. So awesome. um, I'm excited and you can get a print copy, hardcover ebook first week ebook will be on sale for 99 cents for anyone. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll have an audio book out too, for people who listen to the audio book. Oh, awesome. I love audio books. Congratulations on your book coming out. Did you publish it yourself or did you get, did you get a publisher? I published it myself. Um, Wonderful. I actually, it, when you see it, it's actually the name of the publishing company is Zeppelin Publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zeppelin's the name of my daughter. Oh, so I, I named that. the publishing company after my daughter. And then her family symbols, the butterfly. Butterflies are super important to me. And so my publishing imprints a little butterfly that I had made for her. 
Great. Well, I really admire the work you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. And I admire the work you're doing too. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a great rest of your day. If everyone could please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast and hit that share button, we would both appreciate that greatly. Thanks so much. Bye.